Hello and welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and on this program, I sit down in one-on-one conversations with people to find out the stories that brought them to this magical part of the world we all live in, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. This time around, I'll be speaking to Robert Dill. And before I go any further, I just want to preface this with, I was deeply inspired while sitting down with Robert and listening to the stories and accomplishments in his life. And I hope you will be as well too. The conversation began with him talking about the purchase of a summer home on South Pender Island 49 years ago. And it weaved its way through him discussing his involvement working in the James Bay area for community development purposes. He talks about drinking kava in the Vanuatu Islands, sacred dance journeys, magical happenings in Scotland, and it ends with him talking about his involvement with the Pender Island Health Centre and how he helped transform that place many years ago. All that and more in a very delightful interview, and before we get to that, I'm just going to mention a few things, and the first off is... I'm going to be doing more podcasts coming up in the very near future here. I've recorded a number of them with people in the last couple weeks, and the main reason for that is that I'm totally reinvigorated and inspired to get back on the podcast horse again. It's been a little while, and through COVID, I've only done a handful of these and some shorter ones, but getting to talk to people again and doing full-length interviews has been great. If you would like to keep up to date with new podcast releases, there's many ways to do so. I have a YouTube page now you can watch on there. That's called The Stories That Brought You Here on YouTube. There's also the Facebook group page. And if you're on such a thing as Twitter, I'm there as well too. All the links you can find in the show description. And I'd also like to mention that this episode is sponsored by The Tree and Transformation Calendar, made by my lovely wife, Geneva. For the past number of years, she's been creating beautiful calendars featuring original works of art. And for 2023, she's created a colorful, beautiful calendar with each month representing a different tree. The calendars come on individual pieces of paper so you can hang one month at a time or 12 on a wall as some people have, or three on your refrigerator like we do at home. As I've mentioned, she's been making these calendars for years now and people love them. So a purchase of these calendars is not just going to help you know what day it is every day next year. It's also going to help contribute to keeping this podcast rolling along. I put a lot of time into making these interviews sounding great, and I love doing them, but they do take quite a lot of time. I've been trying to figure out a way to help offset the costs of making this podcast, and I came up with this idea to help support my wife sell calendars, which in turn helps me and helps this podcast. So if you like what I do here and you want to help support this, you can buy a calendar or you can buy more than one. Please go to jennavajacobsart.com and there you can find the calendars for sale. You'll find a link for that as well in the show notes. Just click on that and it should send you to the page where you can purchase the calendars which again are totally beautiful and you can see the images of the calendars there. So thank you for listening to that. Now it's time for a little bit of music and then my interview with Robert Dill. So far, what'd you get up to on this early early morning we're at? I got up, noticed last night I had a leak in a skylight right in the glass itself. 
It's coming into the kitchen very slowly, but uh, so I went and put a piece of plastic over the whole skylight and roped it so that uh, it wouldn't leak and uh, had a quick breakfast and drove here. Wow, really? All this before 10 in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> okay, geez. All right. Uh, wow, that's that's unfortunate to have a leak in the skylight. Well, the house is getting old, so I kind of expect those things every once in a while. But I've spent the last month, when it's been nice and uh, uh, dry, kind of preparing the whole place for the winter. So that was kind of an unexpected little little uh, glitch. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, well, we're here in uh, the early part of November on a rainy Friday morning, and uh, the rains have actually been coming down pretty hard the last couple of weeks after that long summer we had. Yeah, hopefully that gets all cleared up and everything in this uh, this old house that you're referring to that I think we're going to be delving into. But I, I will also start off by saying welcome to the podcast and thanks for being here, Rob. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So let's start with the first traditional question here of what brought you to Pender Island? Chance. I was um, working as an architect in Vancouver. I had just completed uh, a job in Cape Breton, pretty major job, and had come back. Uh, I'd saved up about $7,000, and uh, uh, a good friend in the theater department invited me to go sailing for a week, and we sailed throughout the Gulf Islands. And in that process, I fell in love with them. And then I had another week before I had to go back uh, and teach in the Arts One program at university. So a friend lived on Salt Spring, and his uncle, Gavin Reynolds, had 20 acres for sale. So he said, why don't you come over and take a look at it? You might be interested. And we couldn't afford the place we lived in Vancouver, it was right on Marine Drive and uh, had a quarter acre of uh, trees in amongst all the mansions of of Vancouver. And the uh, landlord would put the price up a little bit each year. Uh, I mean, when I think back on it, it was like $70,000 or something like that. Uh, but uh, thought, well, that's just a bit more than I've got right now. So we thought, well, we're looking over on Salt Spring and came over. Um, Gary, who invited us over, was uh, a contractor, and so he worked building all day. And then he came home at night and tried to build and work on his place. And he was pretty exhausted, and, and we looked around a bit. Didn't like the 20 acres that was up for sale. And he said, if you have a chance, try to buy a place that has a house on it so you're not exhausted like myself. So um, we looked around Salt Spring, couldn't find anything, and had a couple days left. And he said, go over to the Penders. They're kind of nice. And drove down, stopped off uh, at Bedwell Harbor at the resort. And there's a little store there, and there was a young woman in the store. And I just happened to ask her if she knew any places for sale. And she said, oh, go talk to my granny. She knows everything about this island. And sent us down, knocked at the door, and... The granny, uh, B. Freeman, invited us in for tea, and um, we chatted, uh, and I fell in love with her place instantly. It was full of full of memories, uh, her memories and things. And uh, the secretary in the architecture firm I worked for, her mother lived on Pender, but I didn't know what her last name was, and I just happened to ask B, and she said, oh, that's Gertrude, that's my next-door neighbor. And so she invited... Uh, 
Gertrude down for tea, and we were thinking as it was getting four or five o'clock that we should uh, try to get back and catch a ferry. And uh, Gertrude said, oh, dearies, you have to spend the evening with me. So we did that, and at seven in the morning, B phoned up and said, I've decided I really like you, and I'd like to sell my house to you. I've been thinking of selling it, and there's been all kinds of uh, problems within the family as to who's going to have it. And, and if I sold it to you, it would solve all kinds of family <laughs> problems. Win-win. So, so she said, come down in an hour, and we'll talk terms. And I came down, kind of chatted with her, and and she said, I think it's worth about $15,000, and we could sign an agreement, and if you don't like it, you can tear it up. So I thought, okay, and signed this agreement, and then went back to Vancouver and thought, well, what have I done? And so I I contacted uh, a developer I knew, um, and uh, he put me in, in touch with a, a realtor, actually in Nanaimo at the time, and uh, the realtor said, well, based on what you're saying, the land should be worth 15000 and the house should be worth 15000 so you're getting one of them for free. So Wow. Um, we decided, okay, let's go for it. At the time, I didn't know. Uh, all I'd seen was the the front door and the inside of the house. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of foggy and rainy. I didn't know the ocean was right next to it. Uh, didn't know any of those things. So, so it was, and then... Um, she had decided that she would leave some of uh, just priceless pieces of furniture. And then the, but when we came over, the family had moved in and taken everything out of the house. Oh, no. So we spent the next six months just kind of gradually furnishing it. And uh, over the years, have built it into a really nice home. So Yeah. Okay. And so what year was this in, roughly? This would have been uh, 72. 72. Yeah. Okay. And this, and you're still in the same house. Still in the same house. It's yeah. the house with the skylight that you were yeah. talking about. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so it didn't have skylights then, but uh, that's why um, I was telling you, I, I've just been working on uh, uh, a story of 50 years on Pender, which will be at the end of this year. So, yeah, totally. Well, actually, and just to let the audience know a little bit about that is that you're you're writing about 20 stories that celebrate your experiences on Pender over the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And a few of them I've been putting into, uh, like I just did one on uh, the hippie days on uh, Gallon Point Road in South Pender uh, that I've uh, put onto a uh, display panel for the South Pender Historical Society. So ghosts I've known and met on the island and so little chapters that'll be kind of interesting, I think. Right on. And so, and your house is located uh, just off of, uh, near. it's near Gallon Point? Yeah. So uh, so this is on the South Island for uh, people who are listening, uh, near the uh, the very end of the tip of the South Island. Uh, Gallon Point, Brooks Point, I tend to think is the most beautiful place on all of the, uh, the islands, uh, both north and south. <laughs> but uh, that's just my opinion. I love it down there. It's great. So that's a lovely place to live. Uh, and so after you purchased the house, uh, how did that experience wind up going for you in the first couple of years? Well, it was really interesting. So I was teaching at UBC in this experimental arts program, and I had a young family, two young girls. So I didn't have a lot of time to be here. So we'd come over about every second weekend and then four months in the summer. And what started to happen was that friends started to ask if they could come over and use the place. So we started to rent the place out to 
friends who were writing their Ulyssian novel or completing their movie, and we would work out an arrangement with them that whenever we wanted to use the house, we'd come over, uh, and they would go back to Vancouver and stay in our place or in a place that they already had there. So we did that for um, a few years, and um, so we would kick them out in the summer and move over and then kind of go back. And after a couple of years of doing that, each time I went back into Vancouver, it was noisy, was smoggy, um, and I thought, I really don't want to live there. I really want to be on Pender. So uh, I had an um, opportunity to do a job in Victoria, I, one day visioning what uh, a neighborhood in Victoria, the James Bay neighborhood, could be. Uh, this is quite a lot of the work I was doing at the time, uh, architecturally. And um, they turned around and said, Smarty Pants, can you make this vision work? And uh, I developed a five-year plan for them. And um, then they asked if I would enact that plan. Try to, And it was a pretty major thing we had to... At that time, James Bay was owned high-rise, like the west end of Vancouver. Oh, really? And all the old houses were being wiped out, turned down. Um, developers were coming in and bringing in undesirable tenants, and they would force the neighbors in to sell, and then they would buy it up, and they would just go down and ba basically blockbust an area and then put up a, a high-rise. So we had to change the zoning and envision a neighborhood that was livable. And they turned around and said, okay, Smarty Pants, make this work. And I thought, okay, um, it's a lot easier to get the Pender from Victoria than um, Vancouver. So we uh, moved over there. And for 16 years, I uh, worked with this project. And quite often, I could actually live on Pender. For periods of time, I would fly into Victoria once a week. I'd fly into Vancouver once a week. I would phone up the little uh, float plane that would come into Bedwell. I'd phone them up at 8 o'clock. They said they could be there at 8.30. I'd walk down. Um, I'd fly into Vancouver, and where I worked was two blocks away from their place. I could actually get to work in Vancouver quicker than when I lived in Vancouver and had to drive. Wow, really? Um, so it was kind of neat neat arrangement. So we started to spend more and more time here, um, but I still had kind of connections back to the cities where most of my work was. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is interesting about the idea of you spending this much time working with the community at James Bay and having a vision for what it could be and spending so many years doing that. I want to spend some time sort of delving into that. So what exactly was your vision that you had at the time and how did it all uh, unfold over those many, many years that you were working on it? So originally we met with all the kind of community leaders to vision what the community could be. And then they got um, a grant to hire me. Um, and so for a year, one, one day a week, I would fly over to Victoria, to James Bay, and, and, and mainly around the community infrastructure. Uh, out of that came four different major areas, one being education and recreation, uh, one being health and social services, uh, one being services for teens and seniors and and then all the community infrastructure parts that would fit in with those and in that process 
Uh, at the time, the NDP had come into power. Uh, they had raised a whole block of old heritage houses. Actually, I think it was done before the NDP came in. So the Socreds before that had um, wiped out a whole block for a parking lot for public service employees and the legislative run the legislative building. So we were really putting a lot of pressure on government. And uh, the NDP, when they came in, had put out a pilot project to do five human resource centers. Uh, this is Dennis Koch uh, and Norm Levy uh, were working on this. And so these were to be uh, integrated health and human resource centers, and they were to be in rural areas. But we were putting so much pressure on the government, they said, look, will you get off our backs if we give you one of these projects? And so we said, okay. So uh, basically, they set up a whole government structure. Uh, there would be a uh, resource board that would be elected and would run uh, all the health, social services. At the time, we said we want education and recreation involved with that. They agreed initially, but then the education minister backed out, saying this was going to set a precedent for the whole province that I'm not going to be able to deal with. But we did get funding, major funding, and set up this community uh, health and human resource center and board. At the time, a developer had, um, if you know James Bay, there was a Right, right in the center, there's a shopping uh, mall and things. And he'd, he'd done an apartment. Uh, the main floor of the uh, shopping mall was kind of be leased to different uh, uh, groups. So we convinced them to give us a space in the mall, plus the whole first floor of what was supposed to be uh, residences. Um, and within six months, they designed a a health and human resource center that I had designed for them. They they built it. And we moved in and basically set up a structure that provided all the services in the community. So uh, this 15-member board, we hired doctors, uh, nurses, uh, developed home support programs, did recycling programs, allotment garden programs, community newspapers, uh, teen center, senior center, got a uh, a grant to build. Um, so initially we took over the school. We did an agreement with the school board that whenever the school wasn't being used for school purposes, it could be used for community purposes. And we ran 60 programs out of the school, then got uh, a big grant, LAP grant, to add on to the school with a community center. So it was kind of that type of work. Uh, I started out with four um, staff and ended up with 120. Um, wow. 16 years later. So. Wow. It's really interesting because, you know, I think about so many experiences I've had in the James Bay area because I lived in Victoria briefly. And I think James Bay is beautiful. But from my perspective, you show up and all these things are around and no even questioning about how they are manifested or arrive in those situations. Yeah. But it sounds like that there is a lot of uh, creativity and thought that goes into making all these things happen. And we were young and idealistic. And there were some really interesting things that happened. Um, I mean, we got set up. The ND, uh, NDP got defeated um, kind of nine months after we were set up. So Creds came in with a campaign to abolish us. <laughs> and uh, and so I ended up getting um, 
Vanderpool down uh, and tried to convince him. They didn't know how to deal with the fact that we had uh, a whole um, medical center set up and were paying doctors on salary and stuff like that. And so they agreed to give us one year to evaluate us. They set up a, an evaluation team. The evaluation team said, this is a really good model. And so they did a report that was 100% positive, and the health minister just threw up his hands and said, okay, if, as long as you don't cause any problems for us, we'll let you exist. So a couple of years later, Grace McCarthy came into power, and uh, she had a, a memory of wanting to abolish us, and I was vacationing in Greece at the time, and I got a, a telegram saying that uh, Grace has decided to uh, get rid of the program, Can you uh, the whole thing, can you come back and help it? And so I went in, um, and I had just finished reading a book called The Tai Chi of Management, and uh, basically she had all the power and the Tai Chi of management kind of says, like, when you're attacked, you just let the force move into you. And then as it uh, starts to lose its energy, you kind of counter move. And I thought, okay, I'll try that. <laughs> so uh, I ended up in a meeting um, with herself and Hugh Savile, who's her assistant. And I knew him quite well. And I knew he was fair, but very, very exact. And so I just sat there and I said, what about severance for all the staff? Oh, we'll pay for that. Uh, what about, we've got rental agreements for the next five years. We'll cover that. What about uh, seconded staff? We'll we'll deal with all these things. So I ended up, after the meeting, um, she just said, uh, you can deal with uh, Hugh around all this. And I did a 50-page report saying, this is what the cost will be for you to do all the things that you've said you'll do, which gave us two full years funding. And our act allowed us to take our resources, put them into uh, reputable community organizations. So we took this health and human resource board that had 15 people kind of basically running the community and made about 20 different nonprofit organizations and divested all our resources into them and kept on going. Uh, I, I told staff, you can either take severance or you can trust me and I'll try to get you work. I think I can promise to, to do that over the next couple of years. And in two years, we were running just as well as uh, we had beforehand with all these separate little organizations. Wow. And uh, Grace was furious at me. She was just furious. <laughs> but there's nothing she could do. So That's amazing. So you totally flipped the script on them. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. So after all those years of uh, doing the work in there and uh, what made you decide to leave that situation and what is your lasting memory of that when you're thinking about this is um, what I feel like really most proud about, what would it be? Well, I never set out to be an administrator. It wasn't really what my goal was. And I, I worked part-time, but they gave me all kinds of freedom. So I took on other jobs. I would still do architectural kind of work, helping design the community infrastructure for things like Tumblr Ridges and Newtown and BC. One of the things that really excited me, because I was spending more and more time doing yoga, teaching yoga, uh, was wellness and the whole concept of wellness, which was pretty new at the time. They had just set up the health promotion directorate in the federal government. And um, I had a meeting with them, and we were doing health fairs. So 
we took over the the elementary school and ran a health festival for the weekend and brought in all of the um, resources from all of Victoria. And we bring in um, people from the states, um, major speakers. Uh, we would have demonstrations. We would have workshops. Uh, we would have bookstores bringing in books on displays for wellness. We would have St. John's Ambulance. We had like hundreds and hundreds of different things happening. And we had 8,000 people that would come for the weekend. And it got to the point where it was so big, we took over the Oak Bay Rec Center after two years at James Bay because we just couldn't handle it. So uh, one of the things that I talked to the health promotion director about was people were starting to phone me from all over the United States and Canada about this health festival I was putting on. And so I ended up getting a grant to write a book on um, putting on health festivals huh. and got the tour um, throughout the States. And probably the most interesting was going to a festival of the mind, body, and spirit in uh, London for a week with 80,000 people turning up and interviewing people and then writing a book, uh, which I did with an editor that I'd um, hired on. And uh, one of the recommendations we had out of that book was to do a magazine that would promote Canadian people in wellness. I, I had no intention of doing this, but the health promotion directorate turned around and said, okay, if this is going to happen, you're going to have to do it. So we set up what we called um, a Wellspring, a quarterly magazine. It would be like the Harold Smith of wellness and uh, for Western Canada, which is where um, the health promotion director said, uh, you have to keep it to Western Canada because that's where our funding arrangement works. And we did a about a 64-page magazine that came out uh, quarterly that uh, promoted uh, wellness, uh, all kinds of different things. So I was doing those kinds of things as well as running this center. And, and uh, administratively running it was pretty easy until we had hiccups, like political hiccups and stuff like that. And I got to a point um, after 16 years where I'd done pretty much as much as I could. And it was at that point that I really decided there was other things I wanted to do in life. I wanted to uh, follow some passions of theater, music, dance. So I um, retired, took off and traveled the world for a couple of years and moved to Pender. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, let's jump into the uh, next phase of your life after that. So yeah. you said you did some traveling. Uh, where did you go and what did you experience? Oh, well, I'd been doing traveling before that. I pretty much involved in the whole yogic uh, world and I was teaching yoga at the time teaching in Victoria, uh, coming over here and teaching, originally at the uh, old school next to the library. And then when the uh, new school or the um, new school got built in the little uh, community room and, and then more later into the um, community hall. And I, I did a lot of traveling around BC. I was designing uh, health and human resource centers in um, Tumblr Ridge, uh, some of the rural areas that had been chosen, and Haida Gwaii, Queen Charles at the time. Uh, I was spending quite a bit of time up there, and I was sitting on a little hill called Toe Hill up in Rose Spit, and I was struck by this lightning bolt, and uh, I was told I was to go to Finthorn 
community in northern Scotland. I didn't know anything about it at the time and got back to Victoria and found out that the leaders of the Fintorn community were in Victoria while I was up in the Charlottes um, talking about the community. So a number of the yoga people knew all about this. So I got kind of filled in a bit and talked to my partner at the time and said, uh, I'd, I'd really like to go there. And she, she wanted to go to India to study yoga. So we made an agreement that we would do both and took four months off and went to uh, England, Scotland, um, and then to India for a period of time. And um, I loved India. I loved being in India. Uh, so we were in ashram for four months there. Okay. Um, but I spent a month just uh, traveling around with my backpack, a couple dollars a day, and just living with the people. And um, so I'd been doing that quite a bit. Uh, when um, I retired, I took off to visit a brother in New Zealand. I stopped off in Fiji on the way. Probably the most interesting experience, uh, I went to Vanuatu because when I was working in James Bay, we had uh, twinned with Vanuatu uh, as a, a twinning, sending doctors there. Okay, is that a community in Fiji? Vanuatu? Yeah. It's a, um, a series of islands in the South Pacific. Okay, all right. And so um, I went there because one of the doctors was still there. It wasn't a doctor I knew well because it was after I'd um, left, but I wanted to kind of go and connect and uh, went and it was his birthday and we spent some time on this little island. Um, with, there was four white people lived on it and all the Neovanuatan. And uh, I had heard that one of the villages um, did a lot of dance and things. And so I asked if it would be possible to go visit the village. And um, one of the other white people uh, said he'd been asked to go up by the chief. And so said, would you like to come with me? And I said, yes, but I think I could stay there. He said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if any white people have ever stayed there before. So they sent a message out and the chief said they'd accept me in custom, which meant bringing gifts. Okay. The chief was about four feet high, wow. four, four and a half feet high. Just twinkly eyes. I fell in love with them. And, uh, we sat around what's called the Nakamel, their, their spirit center, um, and drank kava, which, um, the young boys chewed the uh, root of a pepper plant and mixed it with their saliva, poured it through a uh, uh, a coconut uh, bowl or through a coconut leaf sieve into a coconut bowl, and then we would say good night to each other, take a drink, and uh, sit around the f the fire in the nakamel. And uh, the kava was fairly hallucinogenic. Um, so what I remember of it is that. I had very clear kind of memory, but uh, I had very little control of my mus muscular uh, body. And at one point I got up and I walked around and you kind of, uh, traditionally you, you took a drink of the kava and you put a bunch in your cheeks and you spit it out to the gods as an offering. So I spent a number of days in this village um, no one spoke any English whatsoever, um, but Vanuatu was a French-British protectorate, and they had originally um, sent one of their kids to a French school um, for two weeks and then decided 
that they didn't want to do that anymore. So he spoke a few French words, and I spoke a few French words, and we gradually started to understand each other a little bit. <laughs> so we sometimes got way off limits, and I would sing songs that I knew. Um, they would sing songs that they knew. We had a pretty magical experience. From there, I um, I went to Bali. had beautiful experiences there um, through Indonesia. Ended up in uh, Singapore and Thailand. And by the time I got to Thailand, I was getting a little bit tired of traveling. And I met this young woman who had just come back from studying Thai massage in Chiang Mai. And uh, I thought, well, that would be a really nice thing to do. I could just stay in one place for a while. So I ended up going up there. I got there a week before this course started, met this uh, Buddhist monk, asked me if I wanted to, if I'd ever ridden an elf elephant before. And I said, yes, because I had for 10 minutes in India. And he said, well, would you help me bring an elephant back from uh, the Burmese border? And so for a week, I rode on the head of this elephant. What, for a week? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> As we brought this elephant back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was pretty pretty magical. And then I spent the next uh, uh, month uh, studying Thai massage. Uh, and um, it was interesting when I got to Thailand. I had um, I was actually in Singapore. I'd run out of money. I only had uh, $40 Canadian left. And I had a ticket to Thailand, so to Bangkok. So I thought, I'll go to Bangkok. So I went to the bank uh, to try to get money off my credit card. And my credit card had been put a stop on because I hadn't paid for it oh, no. over a month. So, yeah. so I had to spend half of my money phoning someone back home to try to see if they could put money into my account to get my credit card reactivated. And so I had flown to, uh, to Bangkok. And by that time, I had... $20 left. So I was living on about a dollar to a day. And uh, one of the things that was kind of fun is that there was a, a royal pr procession down on one of the first days I was there for the Queen's birthday. And I was taking pictures and they, the procession went into this big sports area and they thought I was a press photographer. So they gave me a press photographer badge, yeah. which had food. <laughs> and <laughs> So each day I would go, and I only had a roll of film that had about 30 pictures. So each day I would take a couple of pictures of, of this event. And, and there was kind of entertainers from all over the South Pacific that came. So I did that and finally got um, enough money to, to go. Uh, my money came through after I had about $4 left. So then I went up to Chiang Mai and, and did the Thai massage and uh, came back after that. So. Okay. Yeah, it was a pretty pretty fun trip. <laughs> yeah, and what year was this in, roughly? Oh, this would have been in um, late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it was funny, actually, just when you're given that uh, story about taking the Thai massage, I was reflecting back. There was actually a picture on the wall right there, and it's Geneva and I doing a uh, uh, reflexology course in Thailand. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, up in Chiang Mai as well, too. So, yeah. uh, yeah. so I... I I'm picking up what you're putting down about that part of that experience, but not riding an elephant for a week. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. So you you mentioned the word dance as well, too, uh, when you were talking about your experience in that village, and that became a bit of a part of your life. But I want to talk about that. But before I do, you said that you were teaching yoga 
And so this was at a time before yoga became explosively popular. What made you decide to become a a teacher of yoga? And uh, I I guess you still do it today? I do. I I haven't been teaching since COVID, but up until then, I've been teaching on Pender. So my partner, when we had our first child, she wanted to do something just to get back in shape again after being pregnant. And uh, she started taking a yoga class in Vancouver. And when I was teaching in the Arts One program, you could teach in that program for two years. So five instructors came from different backgrounds, and we each brought our perspective kind of interest into a theme. So the first uh, year, we looked at the creative process and the difference between the way artists and scientists came to the creative process and, and, and how that worked. Second year, we looked at reality and whether it was something that as an individual, you created your own reality and brought to society or whether society created a reality that imposed on you as an individual. And so as part of that course, once a week, we would bring in someone to talk uh, around the theme. And I thought, I'll bring in this yoga teacher just to talk about the reality of yoga. So it was a pretty interesting discussion. And then we had moved over to Victoria, and she phoned and said, I'm bringing this guru from India to Vancouver. Would you be interested in doing a weekend with him on Victoria? So we said, yes, we would do that. And so he came, and we just had a group of 50 people in our backyard. And he was a a Raja Yogi who worked with stories and the intellect. And... and, um, I would ask, I was still pretty skeptical of yoga in some ways, so I would I would ask some questions. Um, why would you want to follow a teacher rather than do your own thing? And he would say, well, he said, you come from Saskatchewan. The role of a teacher, uh, think of it this way. You're walking through a snowdrift, and the role of the teacher is to take those first steps. So as you're walking through the snowdrift, if he's already put his footprints, it's easier for you to follow along. Uh, and so he would say, if if this person is um, moving towards the light um, through the snowdrift, you have to be careful because you're always in his shadow. And you'll never see the light yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Good reply. And I thought, that's really interesting. So he said, at some point, you have to be really discerning to step aside from a teacher, or a teacher needs to be able to move aside so that you can follow your own path. So then I would ask him a question like, well, why, why would you want to follow a path of light rather than darkness? <laughs> and, and he said, well, that's a really good question. He said, they both lead to the same place. But to follow a path of light is a little easier in this world than following a path of darkness to get to that place. And I would ask him all these questions and he would answer them. And by the time we were finished this weekend, I realized that he had become my teacher. And so... At that point in time, my partner was uh, teaching, and she was going out every night teaching, and I was uh, working all day and coming home looking after the kids all night. And I somewhat foolishly at the time thought, why don't you teach at home, and then I could um, have some freedom. And um, so she decided to do that, but then what happened was that I had to be quiet at home. I couldn't actually really do very much. I couldn't go out in the workshop and and work because it made too much noise. So I started taking 
her class, I thought, well, I might as well just be part of it. And then I, um, uh, uh, this woman had come back from India who had had a problem with her back and she'd had two uh, vertebrae fused and it caused the next vertebrae to go out. And the medical establishment said, you know, we can fuse that. And she said, no, I'm not going to. She went to India and worked with a guy called BKS Iyengar. And uh, he put her through a pretty tough regime, but totally cured the back. So she came back and started doing uh, monthly workshops. And she was in her 50s, and at that time I was in my 30s. And, and she had us in little pools uh, in the corners. She was just so strong, and, and uh, I really admired her. And so I started taking classes at the Y, and then the teacher... We were doing uh, group work there, and the teacher looked at me one day and said, you should be teaching. And I thought, oh, this is going to cause some problems family-wise, because <laughs> it was my partner's love. And But she was adamant, and so I started teaching uh, yoga, and then it just kind of grew from there. And did you take that teacher training in Vancouver? No, I took it in Victoria. Yeah. But at that time, there was no teacher training. There was apprenticing. Okay. Um, which is quite different than what it is now. So basically, we would, I would just work with other teachers, and pretty soon I was, um, I mean, I was it was at the Y in Victoria, and I was noticing that all the other teachers were female. They weren't being paid very much compared to male fitness instructors and things like that. So I kind of took that on for them, because uh, then when they wanted me to teach, I said, "Well, I'm not going to teach for that amount of money." Okay. So, so then uh, I just said, it's not fair what you're teaching. I mean, based on the money you're getting in from the yoga program, which was really popular at the time, um, you're just not paying your teachers much. So I started to advocate for the the teachers, and uh, and then became in charge of bringing in once a month resource people from all around the world to do uh, yoga workshops. And so I brought people in from. Australia, Greece, India, uh, all over. So it was a pretty, pretty fascinating um, time. You know, it's interesting, Robert. You talk about all these things that uh, you you wind up doing in your life, and so the question that came to me is like, what inspired you to get people in from different parts of the world? Because I like most people wouldn't do that, right? All the steps that you're taking, most people would have stopped well before. What makes you decide? Oh, I'm going to try to bring in some people from around the world and and create a, a different experience for people. Where does that come from? Well, it's the way we learned. And initially, we bring in people from, say, the States, uh, where, you know, it wasn't that far for them to travel from, say, San Francisco or something like that. And they'd come up. And then I started to travel a bit more. So I started going to Greece to study with a teacher I really liked. And then I would bring her back to Victoria and do workshops. And then we'd come over to Pender and do a weekend workshop here. So it was, that type of thing that started to happen. Now, one teacher that I absolutely love, his mother had gone to see Iyengar in uh, India to get pregnant, and a deal was the result. And so he had, grew up in the ashram for quite a period of time, and then came over to Seattle. And uh, 
So we brought him up, and then his brother came from India and did 108 poses as one dance, a continual movement of 108 poses. I mean, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. So each of these teachers brought a different perspective. Well, there's one teacher from San Francisco that was gay and had a whole different way of working with the male body. Angela Farmer from Greece uh, had been studying with Iyengar and then was traveling around India and was looking at all these tantric friezes of these voluptuous women and poses and said, this isn't the way my body feels. Iyengar uh, was uh, part of the military, so he was much more militaristic in the way he um, taught. And so she started to develop her own technique of teaching more uh, from a feminine perspective. And I, I loved that because I thought I was fairly macho and I needed to kind of soften and fuel my feminine side. So, <laughs> uh, And did you? Did you from that experience? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's wild. All these stories you're talking about, it seems like you're, you're always um, connecting people. You're, you're bridging people. You're creating a lot of situations where people are able to have experiences that they might not have. Like, do you, do you see that within yourself as somebody who's a bit of a connector? Yeah. I'll give you a really good example of how that worked. And um, when I went to Fintorn the first time, I got quite involved in the community. And a pretty funny experience. So in the Fintorn community, they have a focalizer that in each area, so like the dining room or the kitchen or the garden, and there's and you start off the day working in those areas, and the focalizer does a little meditation and calls the angel of the uh, dining room or kitchen to guide you. And so I agreed to help work in the dining room at one point in time. So the first day. This focalizer was in a group holding hands, and the focalizer asked for the angel of the dining room to come and bless us. And I was really moved. I went home that night and thought, well, I'd love to be able to um, invoke an angel to come. And I went back the next day, and, and the focalizer had to go um, out of the community to uh, buy some things. People looked at me and said, you, you should be the focalizer today. And I just gulped and closed my eyes and said, okay, angel, if you're up there, um, help me. <laughs> and pretty soon, words started coming out of my mouth. And I had no idea really what I was saying, but when I finished, people were in tears. And they said, that was absolutely beautiful. So I became the focalizer for the next two weeks. And as part of that, they were looking at redesigning the community, part of the community. And I looked at the design. I didn't like it. And I was asking uh, someone about it, and they said, well, we're having a meeting uh, of the kind of key people in the community. You should come. And at first, when I came, they weren't sure that I should be there because I was a guest. Okay. And But they said, finally said, okay, we'll let you be here. And at the end, the person who was uh, focalizing it said, do you have anything you want to say? And I said, yes, uh, I do. Um, this is the way we deal with these kind of issues back home in my experience. And it, it just kind of resonated with them. So then I became part of envisioning the future of the Fintorn community. So it's kind of the same thing I was doing in James Bay. All of a sudden started to happen at Fintorn. Second time I went back, I was in Greece, and I uh, went back for a week, and I, I wanted to do something that was not in my head 
And so there was a sacred dance workshop that happened. And um, I kind of took part of this sacred dance workshop. I met three women during this period. The first, uh, it was uh, summer solstice, and I was sitting down at the beach, and there was this woman that was down the beach a quarter kilometer. And I didn't realize how long, I mean, we're up far north. So the sun didn't set till like 1130 at night. Finally, after it set, I got up and I walked along the beach. And as I walked by her, she just stood up and took my hand. And, and we didn't say a word. She just walked with me, holding hands. It took me back. And I was about to say goodbye without saying a word, just squeezing her hand. And she just took my hand and led me into her place where she was staying, made love to me. And then the next day I thought, well, what's, what has happened? Um, at this point I was uh, separated. So I went back to her and I started asking her questions. And she said, I can't be your teacher. Um, I'll send someone. So the next day, uh, this absolutely beautiful woman walks in. And um, I just said, oh, I'd love to meet her. And she just walks up to me and said, hello, <laughs> would you give me a massage tonight? And I give her a massage, and she, she says, this is what you need to know. Um, the person that you've met is a white witch um, from Switzerland, and you've entered into a world of very strong female energy. You've entered into this world that very few men enter into, and uh, you were just so open she thought you were one of us, but realized Oh, no. So the second person became a teacher and, and uh, just let me know what was going on. Uh, this world I was entering into, we spent all night just chatting. I'd ask her questions. She'd answer them for me. Finished off the morning, um, just had a, a shower together, gave each other a big hug. And by that time, I was starting to feel a fair amount of of um, I'd been exposed to a lot of female stuff. I was like, this needs some time to think about it. The um, person who was running the uh, uh, sacred dance workshop came up to me and said, um, I've met this woman. I think you would just absolutely love to meet her. Um, the two of you would get on. And I just said, well, I think I've had my fill of women. <laughs> and she said, uh, he said, um, no, I'm going to bring her for lunch. And so at lunch, he walked in with her, and I just, even before she sat down, I just looked at her and said, oh, we have this connection. And, and um, she just said, what do you know about the Earth Mother? And I said, I've written this poem for you. And I would say, what do you know about this? And we, we spent the next 24 hours just sharing again information. All three of these women had fallen in love with this teacher of sacred dance who wasn't there at the time. But they said, you need to meet him. And I, I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that was happening at the time. It was kind of crazy in some ways. My brother I knew was going to be in London, um, but I had no idea where he was going to be or anything. And I would just put out into the um, universe that I was flying down on this plane and meet me at the airport. And he'd be there. What? Uh, this this is the kind of stuff that was happening. And, and the kind of thing that happened at Fintorn is that people were doing all kinds of stuff like this. Um, 
the feeling was that it was a place in the universe where the ley lines connected with the universe and that you could move between the upper and lower worlds really easily. So I got back to London and I had really formed a strong connection with this architect in in Greece when I was there doing yoga and this other young woman who, when I was there, I had a song that came into my head and she had kind of helped me bring it into um, reality. And I sang it with a woman named Judy Felix, who would be like the Joan Baez of the European folk music at the time. Okay. And um, so she was in London, and this architect and and April were both at uh, Julie's house. So I went over there, told them what was had happened to me, that these women had asked that I meet this person. And I said, I, I don't have time to go there. But April, I think you should. And I gave her $100 and said, you go and be my proxy. So she went there and just said, my whole world has opened up for me. And I'm bringing um, Colin back to Victoria to do a sacred dance workshop. So he came over and we had 100 people do this weekend uh, dance workshop. And at the end, people wanted it to continue. And he said, well, if it's going to continue, you're going to have to become the teacher. So he uh, gave me a lot of his music, uh, a lot of his notes, and just said, keep it going. And so I became a teacher of sacred dance. And so in Victoria, was that your first meeting with this uh, teacher, Colin? Yeah, first time I'd met him. Okay. And that continued for a number of years. Uh, We did all kinds of uh, rituals, summer, winter solstices, equinox, Beltanes, uh, all all these rituals and and dances, and put out a newsletter um, that connected, again, people from all over kind of North America as to what was going on around sacred dance, and and Europe, actually, and England. So when you ask, was I, did I connect people? That's kind of how things worked. Um, yeah, well, yeah, t- totally. That's, that's a, like, I'm sure there's so much more to those stories that you told me about uh, meeting certain people in Greece and being connected with the community in Scotland and all that. But you mentioned sacred dance. And so for myself and people listening, uh, what can you tell us about sacred dance? Because I have a vague understanding yeah. of that. So it was something that um, a guy in Europe um, introduced, and it was kind of taking taking dance and creating a sacred space with it. So it could be as simple as taking a folk dance, but trying to understand what the essence of the dance was. So we would uh, dance that would sometimes almost be in trance. Sometimes it would be very lively. We would take a piece like Pachelbel's Canon and create a dance to it. We would take a folk dance and dance it and and try to really get into what it was as a dance. So uh, it's hard to explain it in that kind of way. But what we started to do a lot was ritual around uh, dance. So we might have a winter solstice and we would have readings that would be related to the winter solstice and dances that would be related or help um bring that energy up. 
And so it's kind of connecting into, again, a lot of the female energies, uh, a lot of the old pagan energies that existed before the uh, kind of Catholic and Protestant churches put a lot of that underground in, in Europe. And, and uh, so, I mean, if you go back into Morgan Le Fay and all, all these kinds of peoples, uh, a lot of that pagan energy was there. And actually, interestingly enough, a lot when I was at Fintorn and working with the ley lines, a lot of the churches were built on those energy lines that crisscross. Uh, yeah, of around. course. Yeah. yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. yeah, Potent places in the world. Exactly. It's yeah. not, not just a random place where they put those things. Yeah. For sure, but when and so when you speak about um, creating a dance, are the dances choreographed? Yes. And so, how long would it take to be able to memorize a dance? Would there would there be like weeks of preparation for this? Or well, um, quite a few dances we made up ourselves. After a period of time, I I had two other women that taught with me, and so we would take turns, so we didn't have to do it all the time. Yeah. But we would work together to create an event. So when we would get together, it would be like for two hours. And we would start out with certain kind of dances. We would do readings. And we would then progress to a a place where it brought it all together. Colin, who was the person who got me interested in it, um, had put out a couple of books of dances and what their meanings were so it could be things like king of the fairies as a dance and uh, which has got music to it and, and things and we dance dance that uh, so he would choreograph it uh, people around the world would choreograph different dances and then we would publish them so that other people could follow it mm-hmm. um, sometimes we just made up our own dances right on the spot and teach them so it was it was a pretty it was a pretty easy kind of way of going. When I was putting out the newsletter, I would take things like Robert Bly uh, or different people's uh, readings and kind of put them together, uh, put out where different events were happening throughout Canada, United States, and England. So you could go to a festival, the Mind, Body, Spears in London, and kind of June 28th, uh, July 1st, or things like that. So. Yeah, again, connecting more people. Um, you, you know, I'm I'm thinking two things I, I wanted to ask. The first one uh, was, did you develop a sense of community through this? Oh, that, yes. uh, of, of course, a right? A huge sense of community. And it still exists, interestingly enough. For sure. And the second thing is that I have some, uh, some experiences with things along those lines, but not many in my life, but I have. And I think it's very difficult to put into words, um, but I'm going to ask you to try. <laughs> For uh, esoteric experiences like that, what is it that you feel once that experience is over? So the thing is that if you are going to engage in that world and become a teacher of that dance and organize and say there's the winter solstice coming and we're going to do a dance together. What is it that you're looking forward to experiencing once that is over, if you're able to put something like that into words? It's not over. So it continues through, even though you're not doing it, it's still there with you. I'm just trying to think how to answer that. For example, um, when I start doing the dance, 
it brought together a number of uh, men that decided we wanted to form a men's group. So once a week we met as a group of men, and that would uh, then we would decide, okay, we, uh, let's do a kayaking workshop. And then we would uh, end up going kayaking, um, and we would invite a lot of the women from the dance and go out to the Broken Islands or something like that for a week. And that's continued. Now, that group of guys has met with other guys, and we've been kayaking now for over 35 years together. So those connections don't dissipate. They last. And the event might be over, but I would be going out for dinner with some of the people involved, or we would be... Um, and and a, a good example of what happened was that I did sacred dance. Uh, I met a a guy that I became quite close to who ended up teaching folk dance at the university. So he said, would you like to teach it with me? So we did a mixture of sacred dance and folk dance. And then from that, we ended up in meeting another guy who did uh, kind of Latin dancing, and we would do salsa and tango. <laughs> and and then we would go off to uh, Seattle for kind of a whole weekend of, of dancing and end up doing contra dancing and square dancing and and so it just it would just explode all over the place. So we would get together in smaller groups. Um, we would socialize together. But in the energy that would be created would be living in us. So I say it doesn't it doesn't go. It was just become part of who we were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for for sure it does. And and when I start off by asking and and saying it's difficult to put into words, thank you. Thank, I, I think that was a, a good explanation. And and just to even go further with that, because I find it really fascinating, is that you know we're all searching for a sense of meaning in our lives, and uh, at certain points in our lives, or maybe most of it, for some people, uh, it's difficult to really locate where that meaning is yeah. sometimes right but with the sacred dance uh, i'm getting the impression that you found like a very deep sense of meaning that came to you was this a surprise or were you always um kind of somebody who was very tuned in with their body and with movement or was this just something that sort of um came out of the blue at a certain age for you well it came out of the blue a bit um it manifests itself um one of my daughters as she grew up, did ballet, and then as she got into her teens, started working with Linda Reno, um, the dance company doing contemporary dance. And I went to one of her uh, performances, and I couldn't stay in my seat. I don't. I said, I want to do this. So I asked her, and I said, "Do you think it would be all right if I took dance classes?" Not with her, but this, and she said, "Oh, sure." So I started doing contemporary dance, which I loved. But as I moved to Pender, it was really hard because um, it was twice a week and I couldn't always get in. And if I missed a week, it was really hard to pick it up. So I moved from there into improv dance, which didn't have a set sequence that I had to, to know each time. And um, it was kind of the beginning of my real interest in in dance. So at, at the time when I was around 
uh, just under 50 at the time. And so I decided I really wanted to get more into dance, into music, into theater, into my artistic part. And it was fun. I mean, we would, at one point in time, uh, there was an improv um, theater um, performance at uh, McPherson. So three of us uh, as improv dancers were asked if we would be the transition between each improv theater piece. So we would get up on stage and the audience would throw a, a word to us and we would dance it Fine. <laughs> for about five minutes until the next group was ready to come on. And the audience, after a couple of times, they thought, okay, let's see if we can get really obtuse words that are going to be really hard for them to dance. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> but there's things like that that was really kind of fun fun to do. And, uh, and then, I mean, I got involved in music because some of the people that were doing dance, we went down to a, a dance thing in Seattle and there was this band, a Zimbabwean music band that was playing and we just fell in love with it. And we had a teacher come up at UVic and we took marimba lessons and out of that we ended up uh, forming a band and going off to Zimbabwe to study. What? Going to Zimbabwe to study now? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Robert. <laughs> Jeez, all these life experiences. This is yeah. crazy. Okay, so go on. So and then for and we I mean it was really interesting because uh at that time my uh my daughter's boyfriend was a reggae band promoter and uh he had had a um a reggae band, and then he brought in a band from uh, Seattle that did marimba, and uh, on condition that we would open for them. And we had only learned four songs at that point in time. <laughs> we it's good enough starting. for an opening act. Yeah, so uh, we were at Herman's, um, and we go to start playing our first song, and we kind of uh, short-circuited the power for the whole building, so we end up in darkness can't see our instruments we were having to try to play along and it was just it was a gas but uh i mean we got to a point where we would go on tour all summer and play music festivals all the way from Haida Gwaii to uh world music festivals in winnipeg and wow yeah. and so i'm sorry what instrument were you playing uh so we were uh, playing african uh marimbas okay okay i'm, I'm actually unfamiliar with that so word. it's like a wood xylophone a wood xylophone, okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's um, soprano, two sopranos, two altos, a tenor, and a bass. The bass is uh, made out of um, two by six uh, uh, cedar keys. Okay. That uh, And we uh, play it with lacrosse balls um, up on a big bench, and it's about six or seven feet long and about two to three feet wide. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's great fun. This is just blowing my mind, actually. And so, did you have any background in music before this at all? Or? Um, I had played recorder when I was in Vancouver. Um, we uh, formed a, a recorder quartet and played at things like Dollarton Mud Flat. Uh, we'd dress up in medieval costumes and play medieval music. But uh, that was a, a very different type of music than playing Zimbabwean. Uh, music and and i mean we just loved the music and so learned it and brought teachers in and then when, and we were busking on on the uh, causeway in victoria and earning quite a lot of money because the noise was quite loud and so it reattracted <laughs> a lot of people yeah and uh we were earning this money and thought what do we do with it and i just kind of 
non nonsensically said, well, we should go to Zimbabwe and study. And, and people just looked at me, and then we thought about it and said, yeah, that's a good idea. So uh, we went there and uh, had an incredible time and then brought a lot of Zimbabwean music musicians back to Canada, uh, a lot of whom have stayed. And so we've been kind of working on, and we played up until COVID. I mean, we're getting to the point where we were going to retire anyways, because we were stretched all the way from Hornby to Victoria to Pender. To, we were all over the place living, and it was uh, hard to get together to practice. At one point in time, we decided to get together once a month and practice, and we would be going over the same stuff. So we we decided we would not learn any, do anything that we knew, and we would just improv. And so someone would just start playing a piece, uh, and then someone else would add to it. And uh, we we got to a point where we started doing that performance-wise. And there was one one time in Duncan where we did this whole second half of a set where we just played one piece for an hour. And at the end, everyone was entranced, lying on the floor. <laughs> we would just stop one by one and just join them. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. usually in a concert, people lying on the floor uh, is not a sign of uh, of people enjoying it very much. But, yeah, no. but in that case, it totally is. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm so blown away here, Robert. Like, it sounds like there's like all these experiences that you just wind up saying yes to and following, and uh, all these all these like magical experiences seem to take place in your life. Would you agree? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think the world's a magical place. So, <laughs> I I I mean, it's been interesting. I've never followed a very traditional path, and I've kind of let whatever happens that interests me grow and just see where it leads and things. So it's, it's been pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, this is really inspiring hearing these stories because, yeah, um, yeah not, not everybody does that. Like, I don't do that. I, I feel like I say no to a lot of things yeah. or I'm too shy to do something. But um, a lot of things that you're mentioning sound, uh, sound pretty wonderful. Yeah. Um, speaking of saying yes to things, saying yes to, uh, purchasing a house oh so many years ago and then moving to Pender. Let's talk about a little bit of Pender stuff going on here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of the things I want to touch on as well too, is that your relationship with the, uh, the Pender Island healthcare center yeah. and your involvement with that, because that's a really pivotal piece of our community. And I know you've been involved with that for a number of years, but maybe if you could let people know uh, how you got involved and uh, the work that you did uh, while you were there. Mm -hmm. So after I left James Bay and went traveling, I came back to Pender. James Bay gave me a really nice parting money so I could live on it for a few years. But I, I realized I couldn't live on it forever. And um, I didn't really want to work. I wanted to follow my music, my other interests. I was doing a lot of gardening at home. And the health center, I didn't really know at all, didn't, I hadn't used. The board of directors at the time, which were all volunteers, there was no paid administrative staff, went into James Bay because they'd heard that it was a model. So they went in and uh, talked to people there, and the people there said, well, you should talk to Robert. He actually lives on Pender Island. 
So they got in touch with me and asked if I would come in for a day and help them. And so I said yes. And they they were in trouble. Um, it was just getting too big for a volunteer board to look after. They had added on the what used to be the home support wing and moved people around. And some of the uh, practitioners had twice as much space as they did before that, but weren't paying any different amount of rent. And the rents weren't picking up the costs of running the place. So it was just, it was a problem. So they turned around and got a, a grant to hire someone. I said, you really need to get someone in to help organize this. And then uh, put pressure on me to apply. And I said, okay, I'll do it for a couple of years just to help out. So they had this initial grant, but they didn't really have any money to pay for an administrator. So the first thing I tried to do when I went there was to look at uh, how much it costs to run the place and to take the square footage of the whole building and charge everyone an equal amount based on the square footage they were using that would cover the cost of running the place, which meant for some of the practitioners doubling their rents. I almost got run off the island. <laughs> At the time, they were furious, but it was very logically laid out, and it made sense, and they finally all agreed. So that was that was the first big thing I did, and that took the first year just to get all that organized and get the health center on good financial footings. And then the next thing I did, which was just my own pet project, was to try to um, look at it as a one-stop center for all your healthcare needs and bring in all kinds of wellness practitioners. And so the kinds of things I did at the time, there was a counselor that came over from Salt Spring and I knew his boss because he had worked with me in James Bay and just said, look, he ends up spending half his time on the ferry. If you just give us the money, we can hire someone directly and we can double the amount of resource that we have all of a sudden. So they did that. Um, I looked at the nursing staff at the time. Nurses were all coming over from Victoria. And so you'd get one nurse coming for one uh, afternoon a month and another nurse coming for once every two weeks and none of it was useful. So I just, uh, I went back and said, look, the government put out uh, 20 special projects across BC for innovative work to integrate services. So I applied for one and put in a, a proposal for how we would take all these different nurses and hire one full-time nurse. And we were successful. So we got that. The lab was being, services were being provided by um, uh, San Pen. And again, someone would come over on the nine o'clock ferry, would work for two hours and catch the 11 o'clock ferry back. So they spent six hours or more providing two hours of service. And I just said, it's costing you this amount of money to provide the service. You just give us that amount of money and we'll provide three times the service. And they agreed to do that. And so I built all these kind of programs. And then I would just uh, uh, talk to people I knew in the community 
Shelley's Hope and get her in to do shiatsu, massage therapy. Um, at one point in time, I actually, there was a massage therapist on the island and she left and I convinced someone from Victoria that they come over and said, you can actually stay in my, my place to make it economical and overnight. And uh, so I, <laughs> all kinds of stuff like this, uh, and brought all these practitioners in. And, um, so that was the second big thing until we really had a pretty good functioning process. And then, uh, when all that was in place, the building was starting to not be able to handle every, everything. I had two or three practitioners working out of one space. So someone would work for, um, like Mark as a chiropractor would work, say, two or three days a week. But he was renting the space full time. So I just said, look, can we put in a massage therapist in for the other two days? Or And Shelly was renting a space. And so we just started to really fill the spaces up. So then the next big thing in 2006, 2008 was adding on to the building. So I did up a design for it. Because among other things, you're an architect yeah. as well too. <laughs> How about that? So a lot of the work uh, was just maintaining the facility and stuff. And, and, and I could do a lot of it myself where I, I knew exactly, I could hire someone to do exactly what needed to be done and stuff like that. So it was pretty efficient. So with the new building, we, um, we needed to raise a lot of money in the community. And, uh, so I did the design, uh, we undertook a fundraising drive, uh, to try to raise hundred thousand dollars in a hundred days, uh, raised about 125,000 in a hundred days. Uh, yeah. Did all kinds of things. Um, and then I went back to the, uh, capital regional district and said, you know, we've raised this amount of money in the community. We had a fairly good budget set aside. Uh, I have to go back a bit. When the home support agency was there, they were actually making money. And Robin Peterson, who was the uh, director at the time, I, she kind of, uh, became my assistant. And so we kind of would work together. When they, the government decided to centralize all the home support services, moved it over to Salt Spring, they wanted to take the money with them. And I said, no way. If we had been losing money, we would have had to pay it. You wouldn't have paid for it. So because we're saving money, we're going to keep it. So we had a couple hundred thousand dollars um, set aside as a contingency for expansion. So I went back to the CRD and said, based on our population, the amount of money we've already raised in the community is enough to build a brand new hospital in Victoria if people put in the same amount of money per population. And they were just floored and said, okay, we'll come up with the rest of the money. Wow. And um, at the time, it was going to be about $1.1, million. We did up the drawings. We got an agreement from the building inspector that a, uh, a structural engineer could sign off on them. And everything was agreed to. And then the building inspector had a building collapse on Saturna that was on posts in a big rain. Uh-oh. And he changed his mind. <laughs> he said, no, you're going to have to get an architect's seal on it. You're going to have to have a mechanical engineer. You're going to have to have a geotech engineer. You're going to have to have an electrical engineer. All sign off on it. It ended up adding an extra three or four hundred thousand dollars to the cost, and I had to find an architect then who would take plans and 
stamp them basically without changing them very much. And we found someone in Vancouver who was agreed to do that, got all these engineers in, and then went back to the CRD and said, you've caused this problem. You need to come up with the extra money. And they agreed to co-share it with Island Health, who originally said they wouldn't put any money in. So so we ended up with $1.5 million. Uh, and, and it was kind of fun. Um, so what we agreed to do, I ended up getting a company in Duncan that would prefab all of the building materials, just the materials themselves, but not put it together, mm-hmm. uh, and bring it over in two trucks. So it was all cut to size and everything. And then um, just got a local contractor to put it together, and it worked really efficiently. And originally, Bob Funk was going to become the um, project supervisor, but uh, because of the delay with the building inspector, uh, he was doing three other jobs, and he just said, you should get Robert to do it. So I became the contract overseer. Okay. <laughs> and and it worked out really well because I knew where everything should go. And uh, we had one situation with a roofer that contracted it out to someone who'd never done a metal roof before, did skylights improperly, did flashing improperly. And I just said, I said we're not paying you. Took photographs of it and uh, held back his... Uh, his amount of money and and he threatened to take us to court and we said you can do it if you want but uh i've shown the building inspector what's happened i've got all these photographs uh you don't have a case and and what we're going to do is we're going to do all the improvements and we'll deduct that from your your cost and so i could do those kinds of things just because i knew what was going on and so it worked out really well and the nice part is that then we had to figure out okay how do we build on and move people in without closing everything down. So uh, we built it around the courtyard and I said, I would, I'll actually build the courtyard and I'll do all the fencing and the putting the bricks down and the pools and things like that. And there were only then two doors that entered from the old part of the building into the new building. And we just, um, got the new building all finished, tore these two doors down one weekend and moved everyone into the new building because we had to do renovation on the old part too. So yeah, it worked out really well. Wow, this seems like a ton of work. You know, something I was thinking when you were talking about uh, finding a company in Duncan is like, that's not the first phone call you're making, right? For a situation (laughs) like that, right? That it seems like that you've spent a lot of time in your life problem solving and trying to figure out the best way to do things yeah, but uh yeah. it's it's interesting when someone tells a story like you're telling now it just like sounds seems like oh this a uh, thousand piece puzzle just came together perfectly one after another but no i guess there's a lot of frustration and things that don't uh, work out properly and having to like back up and try again and everything but this this whole project with the uh, the healthcare center was it something that actually did go somewhat smoothly or were there like a lot of uh a lot of log jams along no, the way. No, it went uh, very, very smoothly. Um, okay. We had no hiccups at all. Um, I mean, we had little things like um, as we were going to renovate the old part, I had to have uh, an asbestos survey done, and they found asbestos in the flooring in the bathrooms. Okay. But they said as long as you don't touch the flooring, it's fine. Um, so we'd have little things like that. So we would say, okay, we're just going to leave the flooring down um, because 
it's not a, a health issue until the flooring gets taken up. And at that point, then someone has to um, be careful with it. Mm-hmm. But other than that, um, no, it went very smoothly. It went right in time. We were right on budget. So other than, the, other than say, that roof incident or with the building inspector in the first place was really set us back uh, a few months in terms of time and stuff like that. Yeah, it went good. And how long was your uh, relationship with the uh, the healthcare center? Twenty six years. Twenty six years. <laughs> and as my understanding that you're not uh, currently involved, you've uh, you've yeah, stepped I'm, down from that. I retired just before COVID. See, good on you. Be- best decisions I made. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay. Well, and like looking back at with all the time that you spent there, because like after you went through this process of. It seems like you were able to like maximize what was going on in the spaces and do the renovations. Uh, after all those were done, what was your role with the uh, the healthcare center for those years following? Mainly just administering the place, um, dealing with issues that would come up. There would be building issues um, that would arise. There would be kinds of things, say, with the ambulance building where it needed upgrading or um, for periods of time there would be two ambulance attendants but they only had pull out couches in one space and you would have a male or female that didn't know each other that would be sleeping right next to each other and we would say bring in the trailer um, so that uh, you could have two sleeping places separate so we do things like that the pump in the well would go so uh, or staff would leave and then I'd have to find someone else and just running everything on budget. Um, I don't think there's any year that we didn't run a, a bit of a surplus during that whole whole time. So, are you you're totally retired? There's no work going on right now. For uh, there's there's no paid work going on of any significance. I got involved in community work. I guess is um, probably a different. So, and and I had been involved in that before. So I got involved with the Friends of Brooks Point at one point in time back in the 90s. Uh, a friend and I were sitting in his boathouse and just talking about, well, you know, what do we leave our children? What do we want to leave our children on this island? And uh, and Brooks Point was one of the things. Uh, it was owned by a family I was quite close to. And they were pretty conservation-minded, and so we worked out an arrangement with them. Uh, It was originally three lots, so it could have been uh, three houses built on it. Okay. And um, so we formed a a group called the Friends of Brooks Point. Again, did fundraising, and we had to... So we had it evaluated at three-quarters of a million dollars. Um, The owner, Alan Brooks, uh, said he would donate one of the lots if we could come up with the uh, 500000 for the other two. And we spent three years raising monies um, to do that, uh, doing everything you could possibly imagine. Holy smoke. So $500,000 for two lots. What would that be worth today? Oh, be oh. worth a fortune today. Yeah. I can't believe, Wait, what year was this in? This was in uh, mid-90s. Mid-90s. Okay, this yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Wow. So we finally got the monies through. And a couple of big grants from conservancy groups and things like that to make it to a park. And then we worked out a management agreement 
with the CRD to operate it as a conservancy park, which is the only one they actually have um, in in the whole region. And then uh, two pieces of property have been purchased since that time to create the whole park. Um, and it's an amazing place. Oh, it yeah. is. Yeah. It is absolutely an amazing yeah. place. So I spent, and I'm still involved with it. Uh, we're still trying to work out things with the CRD. In fact, I'm going to meet this afternoon around that. Um, they want to put up a split rail fence on parts of it to keep people from trampling on it. Uh, and we think it's a bit of an overkill. And, and so the relationship, the CRD would love to just be able to do what they want with it without listening to the community. And we're uh, trying to hold them to the fact that it's really the community that's uh, part of the management plan and needs to be consulted in all of this. So I did that for a period of time. And then uh, after after that, the next piece was Greenburn Lake and uh, putting quite a bit of pressure on uh, uh, when the federal government looked at creating National Park to save Greenburn Lake. Originally, I was going to buy it um, with one of the doctors when I first moved to the island. Oh, wow. <laughs> And but he and his partner split up partway through our negotiating process, so it never happened. And the national parks were not; it wasn't on their priority list. They wanted; they were trying to get Moresby Island, um, but the owner wouldn't sell for a price they could afford, and so they ended up getting Greenburn Lake. So those were the two major parts we really wanted to protect on South Pender. And then the next thing was the uh, little um, church, and at one point in time, the neighbor neighboring property um, did a subdivision proposal. And as part of that proposal, they um, said that they would fund the renovation of the church. And uh, and we thought that was a, a good deal. But the uh, Anglican diocese wanted too much money for it, even though it was the community that provided the land and did all the, the work initially. Wow. And so that broke down, but we had formed a um, South Pender Historical Society with a mandate to try to help preserve the church and things as part of this process. And and when it broke down, we just um, decided to carry on, met with the parish. The diocese originally was thinking of getting rid of the church because it wasn't uh, being used for church purposes anymore. The diocese kind of wanted to keep it. And so we've worked out an arrangement with them that the Historical Society um, does a lot of the maintenance um, and runs all kinds of programs. And, and we've been doing things all the way from um, grower and maker's market, art off the fence, uh, um, community music events, um, his, history uh, talks on, on old settlers and things, uh, and a lot of work with First Nations to try to... Um, reconnect them back so that's taking a lot of my time and stuff but it's what i it's my community service yeah totally and all these things are in your neighborhood right because yeah, yeah. the the church that you mentioned is just the church up the hill from uh, poet's cove so people have an idea of uh, where that's located but uh yeah like gallon point and uh greenburn lake and the church they're they're all they're all in your neighborhood yeah, where you live in my neighborhood <laughs> yeah and they're Places that I use all the time. I mean, this summer I've uh, been going up to Greenburn Lake, and I ended up swimming around the lake um, one day and absolutely loved it. And thought, oh, this is a really nice thing to do. So um, up until middle of October, I was going up there twice a week 
and it takes about 40 minutes to swim around the lake. Yeah. And, uh, and there's no one up there. It's just, it's like my own little oasis. <laughs> yeah, I know. Over the summer, like multiple summers, my wife and I have uh, gone up there and, and, you know, maybe, um, four o'clock in the afternoon or so and just had the place to ourselves. And it is, it is a beautiful, magical place, Greenburn yeah. Lake. Yeah. And, uh, people don't go in the water. There's too many lily pads. It's too hard <laughs> to get in. So it's like, okay. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to have that place to yourself. Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's so much more to uh, to talk about, but we're we're gonna wind this down now. But Robert, I, like, thank you so much for sharing all these stories. Oh. Sincerely, this has been really amazing to listen to, and actually, like, very inspiring for me. All the things that you've uh, you've done in your life that you mentioned today, I'm seeing that there's a, a lot of a lot of time and room available to to do more. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you've done a lot with your life uh yeah, it's incredible yeah. but is there anything else that you want to uh, say before we uh we end this off uh, the only thing i um haven't mentioned is that i've really um spent a lot of time over the last years in my garden uh and and love it uh and uh part uh, i partly started out because i thought you know at some point i'm not sure we can be totally reliant on the rest of the world for our survival and uh it's a good um opportunity to try to create a garden that would provide and it does pretty much now i mean uh, the fruit fruit trees the vegetables um the berries uh, different things we can almost live on it year round which is a pretty special thing and so it's connected then into all kinds of things with the uh, kind of vegetable collections and things like that at the fall fair and stuff but uh, that's a whole other story so <laughs> yeah but a love for uh for growing your own food and being yeah, yeah. being in the garden and uh yeah there's something really lovely about uh, yeah. about having your hands in the dirt and being close to the ground and as we talked about before we started the interview the enjoyment of harvesting which i seem to have a problem doing that last step in the whole process of harvesting but that's the best part it feels like yeah uh, well, thank you again for uh, doing this. Thank you, Robert. Well, thank you. Well, wasn't that just great? Thank you again to Robert for doing that interview with me. And thank you for sticking around and listening to the whole episode. I really appreciate that people enjoy these and listen to them. And if you did get a lot of enjoyment with this and you want to share it with people, please feel free to do so on social media. Up until this point, I haven't really done any sort of work with promoting the podcast and putting it out there. I just kind of have this philosophy of people will find it if they're meant to find it. But I would really like more people to hear these interviews. I think that they hold a lot of value and they're really important. And they really give us a deeper insight into people who live in and around our community. So sharing this with people in your friend groups provides this podcast an opportunity to be heard by people who might not hear it otherwise. As well, if you're curious about people's lives, if there's one thing I've found that people do really enjoy answering questions about themselves, and I think we have such an opportunity to build stronger communities and stronger connections within our friendship groups when we show curiosity about people's lives. And again, if you'd like to support this podcast by purchasing a calendar made by my wife, you can do that by clicking on the link in the description at Geneva Jacobs Art. And lastly, Thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music for the show. And thank you. Until next time.